Chapter Nineteen of Characters of Shakespeare's Plays by William Hazlitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nemo. Richard the Third. Richard the Third may be considered as properly a stage play. It belongs to the theatre rather than to the closet. We shall therefore criticize it chiefly with a reference to the manner in which we have seen it performed. It is the character in which Garrick came out. It was the second character in which Mr. Keene appeared, and in which he acquired his fame. Shakespeare we have always with us, actors we have only for a few seasons, and therefore some account of them may be acceptable, if not to our contemporaries, to those who come after us, if that rich and idle personage, posterity, should deign to look into our writings it is possible to form a higher conception of the character of richard than that given by mr keene but we cannot imagine any character represented with greater distinctness and precision more perfectly articulated in every part perhaps indeed there is too much of what is technically called execution when we first saw the celebrated actor in the part we thought he sometimes failed from an exuberance of manner, and dissipated the impression of the general character by the variety of his resources. To be complete, his delineation of it should have more solidity, depth, sustained and impassioned feeling, with somewhat less brilliancy, with fewer glancing lights, pointed transitions, and pantomimic evolutions. The Richard of Shakespeare is towering and lofty equally impetuous and commanding haughty violent and subtle bold and treacherous confident in his strength as well as in his cunning raised high by his birth and higher by his talents and his crimes a royal usurper a princely hypocrite a tyrant and a murderer of the house of plantagenet but i was born so high our airy buildeth in the cedar's top and dallies with the wind and scorns the sun the idea conveyed in these lines which are indeed omitted in the miserable medley acted for richard the third is never lost sight of by shakespeare and should not be out of the actor's mind for a moment the restless and sanguinary richard is not a man striving to be great but to be greater than he is conscious of his strength of will his power of intellect his daring courage his elevated station and making use of these advantages to commit unheard-of crimes and to shield himself from remorse and infamy if mr keene does not entirely succeed in concentrating all the lines of the character as drawn by shakespeare he gives an animation vigor and relief to the part which we have not seen equalled he is more refined than Cook, more bold, varied, and original than Kemble, in the same character. In some parts, he is deficient in dignity, and particularly in the scenes of state business, he has by no means an air of artificial authority. There is at times an aspiring elevation, an enthusiastic rapture in his expectations of attaining the crown, and at others a gloating expression of sullen delight as if he already clenched the bauble and held it in his grasp the courtship scene with lady anne is an admirable exhibition 
with smooth and smiling villainy the progress of wily adulation of encroaching humility is finally marked by his action voice and eye he seems like the first tempter to approach his prey secure the event and as if success had smoothed his way before him the late mr cook's manner of representing the scene was more vehement hurried and full of anxious uncertainty this though more natural in general was less in character in this particular instance richard should woo less as a lover than as an actor to show his mental superiority and power of making others the playthings of his purposes mr keene's attitude in leaning against the side of the stage before he comes forward to address lady anne is one of the most graceful and striking ever witnessed on the stage it would do for titian to paint the frequent and rapid transition of his voice from the expression of the fiercest passion to the most familiar tones of conversation was that which gave a peculiar grace of novelty to his acting on his first appearance this has been since imitated and caricatured by others and he himself uses the artifice more sparingly than he did his by-play is excellent his manner of bidding his friends good-night after pausing with the point of his sword drawn slowly backward and forward on the ground as if considering the plan of the battle next day is a particularly happy and natural thought he gives to the two last acts of the play the greatest animation and effect he fills every part of the stage and makes up for the deficiency of his person by what he has been sometimes objected to as an excess of action the concluding scene in which he is killed by richmond is the most brilliant of the whole he fights at last like one drunk with wounds and the attitude in which he stands with his hand stretched out after his sword is wrested from him has a preternatural and terrific grandeur as if his will could not be disarmed and the very phantoms of his despair had power to kill mr keene has since in a great measure effaced the impression of his richard the third by the superior efforts of his genius in othello his masterpiece in the murder scene in macbeth in richard the second in sir giles overreach and lastly in arunico but we still like to look back to his first performance of this part both because it first assured his admirers of his future success and because we bore our feeble but at that time not useless testimony to the merits of this very original actor on which the town was considerably divided for no other reason than because they were original the manner in which shakespeare's plays have been generally altered or rather mangled by modern mechanists is a disgrace to the english stage the patchwork richard the third which is acted under the sanction of his name and which was manufactured by kibber is a striking example of this remark the play itself is undoubtedly a very powerful effusion of shakespeare's genius the groundwork of the character of richard the mixture of intellectual vigour with moral depravity in which shakespeare delighted to show his strength gave full scope as well as temptation to the exercise of his imagination the character of his hero is almost everywhere predominant and marks its lurid track throughout the original play is however too long for representation and there are some few scenes which might be better spared than preserved and by omitting 
which it would remain a complete whole. The only rule indeed for altering Shakespeare is to retrench certain passages, which may be considered either superfluous or obsolete, but not to add or transpose anything. The arrangement and development of the story, and the mutual contrast and combination of the dramatis personae, are in general as finely managed as the development of the characters or the expression of the passions. This rule has not been adhered to in the present instance. Some of the most important and striking passages in the principal character have been omitted, to make room for idle and misplaced extracts from other plays, the only intention of which seems to have been to make the character of Richard as odious and disgusting as possible. It is apparently for no other purpose than to make Gloucester stab King Henry on the stage, that the fine, abrupt introduction of the character in the opening of the play is lost in the tedious, whining morality of the uxorious king taken from another play. We say tedious because it interrupts the business of the scene, and loses its beauty and effect by having no intelligible connection with the previous character of the mild, well-meaning monarch. The passages which the unfortunate Henry has to recite are beautiful and pathetic in themselves, but they have nothing to do with the world that Richard has to bustle in. In the same spirit of vulgar caricature is the scene between Richard and Lady Anne, when his wife, interpolated without any authority, merely to gratify this favorite propensity to disgust and loathing. With the same perverse consistency, Richard, after his last fatal struggle, is raised up by some galvanic process to utter the imprecation without any motive but pure malignity, which Shakespeare has so properly put into the mouth of Northumberland on hearing of Percy's death. To make room for these worse than needless additions, many of the most striking passages in the real play have been omitted by the foppery and ignorance of the prompt book critics. We do not mean to insist merely on passages which are fine as poetry and to the reader, such as Clarence's dream, etc., but on those which are important to the understanding of the character and peculiarly adapted for stage effect. We will give the following as instances among several others. The first is the scene where Richard enters abruptly to the Queen and her friends to defend himself. Gloucester They do me wrong, and I will not endure it. Who are they that complain unto the King, that I forsooth am stern, and love them not? By holy Paul, thy love his grace but lightly, that fill his ears with such dissentuous rumours, because I cannot flatter and look fair, smile in men's faces, smooth, deceive, and cog, duck with French nods, in apish courtesy, I must be held a rancorous enemy. Cannot a plain man live and think no harm, but thus his simple truth must be abused with silken, sly, insinuating jacks? Gray to whom in all this present speaks your grace? Gloucester. To thee that hast nor honesty nor grace, when have I injured thee, when done thee wrong, or thee, or thee, or any of your faction? A plague upon you all! Nothing can be more characteristic than the turbulent pretensions to meekness and simplicity in this address. 
again the versatility and adroitness of richard is admirably described in the following ironical conversation with breakenberry breakenberry i beseech your graces both to pardon me his majesty hath straitly given in charge that no man shall have private conference of what degree soever with your brother gloucester e'en so and please your worship breakenberry you may partake of anything we say we speak no treason man we say the king is wise and virtuous and his noble queen well struck in years fair and not jealous we say that shore's wife hath a pretty foot a cherry lip a bonny eye a passing pleasing tongue that the queen's kindred are made gentlefolks how say you sir can you deny all this breakenberry with this my lord myself have naught to do gloucester what fellow naught to do with mistress shore i tell you sir he that doth not with her excepting one were best to do it secretly alone breakenberry what one my lord gloucester her husband knave wouldst thou betray me the feigned reconciliation of gloucester with the queen's kinsman is also a masterpiece one of the finest strokes in the play and which serves to show as much as anything the deep plausible manners of richard is the unsuspecting security of hastings at the very time when the former is plotting his death and when the very appearance of cordiality and good humour on which hastings builds his confidence arises from richard's consciousness of having betrayed him to his room this with the whole character of hastings is omitted perhaps the two most beautiful passages in the original play are the farewell apostrophe of the queen to the tower where the children are shut up from her and tyrell's description of their death we will finish our quotations with them queen stay yet look back with me unto the tower pity you ancient stones those tender babes whom envy hath immured within your walls rough cradle for such little pretty ones rude rugged nurse old sullen playfellow for tender princes the other passage is the account of their death by tyrell dighton and forest whom i did suborn to do this piece of ruthless butchery albeit they were fleshed villains bloody dogs wept like two children in their death's sad story oh thus quoth dighton lay the gentle babes thus thus quoth forest girdling one another within their innocent alabaster arms their lips were four red roses on a stalk and in that summer beauty kissed each other a book of prayers on their pillow lay which one quoth forest almost changed my mind but oh the devil there the villain stopped when dighton thus told on we smothered the most replenished sweet work of nature that from the prime creation e'er she framed these are some of those wonderful bursts of feeling done to the life to the very height of fancy and nature which our shakespeare alone could give we do not insist on the repetition of these last passages 
as proper for the stage we should indeed be loath to trust them in the mouth of almost any actor but we should wish them to be retained in preference at least to the fantacini exhibition of the young princes edward new york bandying childish wit with their uncle end of richard the third